you're in the right room, if you're looking for the first of our three-part evening series with our 18th annual one-month scholar, Mark Dollinger, and if you forget what he looks like, you can get the J Life out, and he's on the front page. And if you forget what the program's about, you can look at the back page. And no, we didn't buy the front page and, and the back page. We, but um, it's just a, a good photo. They liked it. So um, we'll have to get a picture of you holding this afterwards. So um, wearing a CSP hat. I'll start where we are tonight, go back a little bit, and then we'll, get, we'll go right into the program. Where we are tonight is the first in our three-part evening series entitled Land of Opportunity and Land of Challenges. And the subtopic for tonight is the 10th, Immigration and Jewish Acculturation. So we're going to have the general topic three times with different subtopics. You all, I assume, know that because you're here and you're ready to enjoy that. Um, as you all should know, except Ayal doesn't know because it's his first program, we have dedicated this whole series to your parents. This is Ayal Wilner. Raise your hand for a second. Do you guys know Ayal? Yes. Okay. He's Are the product here? of the people that we're dedicating. Are they the whole here? Program. I think, <laughs> right. I think your dad's here somewhere. Ayal is somewhat fluent in Hebrew, I think, but did not live in Israel. So I assume you got that from your parents. Who uh, we... I got it from CST parents, uh, and I lived in Israel for when I was a baby and for one year when I was uh, after college, after high school. Right. Does that accent help you in your medical career here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everybody from Israel. Right. Don't um, we all know that uh, Ofra and David lived in pre-state Palestine, which is very important because next year's theme, I believe, you, I'll let you in a little secret. It looks like we have our teacher for next year, thanks to Professor Dollinger, but I won't tell you who it is. Unless you're on the CSP board, you may know. Don't tell anybody. And the theme will be 25 lectures about Israel from pre-state to contemporary politics, including a potential evening series about three of the great prime ministers. So that is what we should have done for you. I'm so sorry. You're stuck with American Jewish history. But I think actually maybe that's more appropriate because you left Israel and you came to America. So, you know, that's what you get with David. He was born here. I know, I know. So that's why we gave you America. Um, if anybody is Israeli, would like to be honored next year, see me after the program. We will discuss it. Okay, so uh, this is lecture presentation number six. Has anybody attended all? Is this anybody's sixth program? Raise your hand if this is your sixth program. No one is six for six? You guys slacking this year? We have new people to our community, Harry and Lenore back there, relatively new. Usually we have people that go to everything, like 21 lectures, but... Has anybody attended five programs at least? Okay. You know I'm working on special gifts for the people who attend the most programs. I already have ideas. Um, just make sure you have room in your backyard for a very big pet. That's the only thing. <laughs> From the Israeli zoo, because they do adoptions now. I'm just working on it. Okay, so um, please take a moment, turn off your phones. So they don't go off during the program. We are taping. Grendel's doing it in the back. We have um, programs coming up in the community tomorrow night. Shira Malad is hosting Jews and Whiteness. Um, I am told that's a very good program. I hope you will attend. Uh, and then CBI on Shabbat morning, well, Shabbat afternoon, 1 o'clock is the actual presentation. American Jews, Power in Israel in the Contemporary Era. Uh, CSP Patron, Legacy Circle, Campus, Antisemitism, San Francisco State, a personal reflection Saturday night. And then Sunday, what do we owe... Peter Stuyvesant, 350 Years of American Jewish History. Is that overlap with the program we did yesterday at lunch? It does. 
Okay. So if you came to the lunch program yesterday, you get a buy. You don't have to go to the Sunday program. However, if you attend, do you get to count, double count it? No. If you go, you get to double count it, and I will give you that. Upcoming programs, I just wanted to mention, where, are the, where is Rabbi Larry Seidman? Raise your hand for a second. Rabbi Seidman has uh, invited CSP, and we have co-sponsored a special program, an event of the Archaeological Institute of America, Orange County Society, um, with Jody Magnus, who's an archaeologist. She'll t- be talking about some of the crazy things and interesting things she found in, a, in the village of Chukok in the northern part of Israel. And uh, we already have, just from CSP alone, almost 80 people signed up for that program. So if you haven't signed up, I hope you will and attend it. February 5th, lessons from Elie Wiesel's classroom with Rabbi Dr. Ariel Berger, who was Elie Wiesel's TA for 20 years. I am, all, I am more than halfway through the book. It is a really good read. You will enjoy it. I'm sure you will enjoy him. And that's almost sold out. So if you haven't signed up, I suggest you sign up. Otherwise, uh, I guess you can stand out there and try to read lips through the door. Uh, February 10th, a final day to sign up for our CSP adult retreat with uh, Gil Chovav, who are flying in from Israel to spend the day with us. And then uh, Mark Michael Epstein comes to Orange County for a weekend at uh, CBI and for CSP. On March 8th, we'll be doing a program, Lions, Unicorns, Fire Dragons, The Art of the Polish Synagogues. And then on Sunday, we'll be going to the Getty Villa. I will add that, I, of course, you know we add programs all the time. So if you're coming on our trip, our sold-out trip to Lithuania and Poland, or if you're just interested, we're bringing in from New York in February, I believe it's the 13th, um, one of the most important uh, Jewish genealogists in America. And she'll be talking about how to trace your Jew- Jewish genealogy, giving you examples, and meeting with people from our group who sign up in advance to get, to get uh, more details. So when we go to Eastern Europe, you will have some good information. Yes? You, you, I didn't send the email out yet. So as soon as I send the email out tomorrow, you can sign up and get a time with her. Um, an artist, an Israeli artist uh, who's American, actually originally Andy Arnovitz will be with us March 12th to 13th. I mentioned we're going to Lithuania and Poland. I sent out an email saying, hey, look, here's a structure of what we probably will do October 18th through 30th, 2020. If you're interested, give me your name. I'll put you on our list. You'll get the first chance to register. We have 76 people on the list already. So we will not take 76 of you to Israel, but uh, you will get a chance to register once we open registration um, in a few months. CSP Cap Challenge is going strong. As I said, I've got some very unusual pictures that have been sent to me. Um, let's try to keep it clean, folks, especially um, you guys from the Sex Museum. I don't know if I, if I can use that one. I did ask you all to please turn off your cell phones. So I'll, just because it's the first in the three-part series, I'll tell you a little bit about our speaker, and I promise you not to do that again in the future of these class series. Professor Mark Dollinger holds the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies and Social Responsibility. That's a very long name. Can you shorten that? Four months. Can, did you make that? No, you didn't make that up, did you? I applied for it. Okay. Well, Professor holds some chair, Richard and Rhoda's chair, in San Francisco State University. Uh, he's an author and expert in the fields of Jews and American politics, American Zionism, and California Jews, um, a past president of both the Jewish Community High School of the Bay and, Bay and Brandeis Hillel Day School. Mark serves as academic vice president of Lairhouse Judaica, as well as trustee of URJ Camp Newman and the Bay Area Jewish Healing Center. He's also a founder of The Kitchen, if you ever heard of that. How would you just put that in Independent the... Independent synagogue. Independent. What do they call themselves in their name? Well, in, well, yeah. There's a name that they've given themselves, that group. Yeah. Okay. 
the Young Guns, the independent Young Guns at the Kitchen. Mark is a, a co-founder with uh, Rabbi Noah Kushner, who we hope to bring down to Orange County in the next few months. Um, he sits on the California Advisory Committee of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, was named 2008 Volunteer of the Year by the San Francisco Jewish Community Federation, and was awarded the San Francisco JCRC's 2015 Courageous Leader Award for his work against the BDS movement. Please join me in welcoming Professor Mark Dellinger back here, Federation Campus. We are going to start with a pop quiz. Raise your hand, don't shout it out. Who is this and why do we care? Please. Your great-grandfather. My great-grandfather, um, A.J. Dollinger. Excellent guess, it's the incorrect answer. <laughs> oh, this is a tough one, I know. This is Israel Zangwell. Oh, five of you are now. Now we get it, and the 38 others are like, who is Israel Zangwell? In 1908, Israel Zangwell authored a play called The Melting Pot. Um, it seems to be, in American Jewish history, our favorite model of immigrant acculturation, and it is our subject of, for today. Good evening and welcome to those who are new to the CSP series, and welcome back to the many of you whose faces I do recognize. And uh, let's get right to our historical question. If you look at the sheet in front of you, actually, no, not quite yet. It looks as if an example of the CSP hat challenge has made it once again into the presentation. Um, are any uh, animation on that particular image? Anybody know where that is? Excellent. So now we'll look at our historical question. Not yet. <laughs> Group right. picture. That one you guys should recognize. Anybody from New York here? What part of what part of uh, Brooklyn? Brooklyn. 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 It's actually Brighton Beach. Brighton Beach. All right, excellent. And finally, oh, one more picture. That's Peter and Lance. They're holding some kind of cookie. All right. Right. So you have a couple more weeks to get those definitely clothed pictures of the uh, CSP hat, most, mostly closed, and then you can compete. And just for those of you who haven't been before, I want you to know I'm already submitting my own entries because the competition is stiff. Um, in front of you, you will see our goal for this evening, and that is the historical questions. What are the major models of immigrant acculturation to the United States, and how have American Jews acculturated? This is week one of a three-week thematic overview of the American Jewish historical experience. And I'm going to say this to you now only because Ari is not in the room. This is, a oh, oh, never mind. This is not actually American Jewish history tonight. Tonight is going to be sociology, a little bit of theory um, to uh, animate uh, the history that you're getting at the other talks. Tonight, I will argue that an immigrant group's relationship to power, more than any other factor, 
determines their model of acculturation, which I'll define as we go through. As Jews have attained middle-class status in American society, their preferred model of acculturation has reflected it. And this is where we have, there is no Santa Claus night. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, the melting pot of Israel Zangwill, whom you just saw at the beginning, wasn't so great. All right, tonight is audience participation night in the Community Scholars Program. And, uh, and here's how it's gonna go. I'm gonna take you back to your youth, to your childhood, to the notions of American Jewish history as they were probably taught to you by your family, in your religious education, even in your secular education. And then thanks to my tenure, we're going to turn it upside down, implode it and twist it in every which way so that when you walk out of here tonight, you will be thoroughly disenfranchised and upset and have great angst and I will just be so happy <laughs> because that's my job. So let's begin with the uh, historical models of Jewish identity. This is, the melt this is the image of the melting pot, right? And the melting pots, and we start with the melting pot because that's kind of what America is, right? We all get that. America's supposed to be the melting pot. This is how we start. Um, according to the melting pot idea, as the Jewish writer Israel Zangwill explained, America is a place where all the different immigrants who come into the country can get put into the same pot, melted together to create a new America. It's a beautiful, hopeful, optimistic, inaccurate <laughs> idea. Now, thanks to computer technology, and I will call this new computer technology, and if there's anyone here who does computers, you know this is like really old technology, but I'm still really impressed with it. Time Magazine got someone who knows technology to take what each, what, what, what the melting pot American would look like. If you really took every American in the country, a snapshot, this was done almost 20 years ago, but if you took the snapshot of American and you melted them all together into a, a new American, what would the new American look like? So the first thing is it's a woman, because there are more women than men. And second, here she is. Right? That, that is the melting pot. And that's what America would be under the melting pot um, idea. All right, so now let's talk about how American Jews fit into the melting pot. Between, uh, let's just say, okay, there's our, there's our Jewish immigration slide. Um, between 1880, oh, now wait a minute. For those of you doing the Wednesday brown bag lunch series, I'm going to give you a little bit of a clue for next week's talk. Just kind of hold on to it and you'll be really impressive with your friends. Between 1881 and 1905, a million and a half Jewish immigrants arrived in this country from Eastern Europe. By the time of the 1920 census, there were, we estimate, 2 million Eastern European descended American Jews. Here's a little bit of an aside for you. Because of the separation of church and state, for the most part, the government cannot ask your religion on census questions. 
They actually have a couple where they have found different ways to do it. So scholars of American Jewish history have to figure out how to count Jews when government doesn't count Jews. And what they do is they look at native language. Because if the native language in the 1920 census was Yiddish, they know. <laughs> so I can report to you there were 2 million native Yiddish speakers in the United States. Um, and in the time of this massive emigration from Eastern Europe, about a third of the population of Eastern European Jews left. And I'm also setting up your trip to Lithuania uh, and, to, and to Poland. Um, only tens of thousands left for what was then Palestine at the time in order to see how that goes. And when they came to America, they settled mostly in the Lower East Side, where I know your New York trips have been and, and, and seen. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, the Lower East Side of New York had the highest concentration of Jews since biblical times. And uh, once they created their culture, they brought Yiddish with them. The uh, Jewish Daily Forward, which um, was the big newspaper, uh, turned out to be the largest non-English language daily newspaper in the United States, which is a fancy way of saying it had more circulation than the German newspapers, because that was the only other non-English newspaper of, of, any, of any sort. So that was quite impressive. Um, in, the, in the politics uh, of this melting pot generation, uh, Jews tended, well, we are recording this, but I am protected by the laws of tenure, so I will tell you. There were Jewish socialists and communists in turn of the century New York. Um, and here's what they did. In the local elections, they would vote for socialists or communists, but they knew in the national elections it wasn't going to go, so they went for mainstream candidates. And it may be a surprise, they voted Republican most of the time in the turn of the 20th century. It was the party of Theodore Roosevelt. It was the party that granted them citizenship. And the Republican Party of the turn of the 20th century was also the progressive party, or ultimately became the progressive party. In popular culture, um, Yiddish infiltrated um, America and the English language. There are many non-Jewish people today who know what it is to have to schlep something around. In fact, they think schlep is probably an English word when it's not. My favorite was a vice presidential debate several election cycles ago when um, the, I'm, now I'm forgetting which vice presidential candidate it was, but he told the, the other person that, it takes a lot of chutzpah to say what you just said. <laughs> and I love that because clearly he got it from a sheet of paper that a staffer had given. He read chutzpah, which means one, by the way, if you didn't get the joke, chutzpah, which is the Yiddish word, had entered the American political lexicon to such a degree that it would be put in on a staffing report for, for, um, for a vice presidential debate. And there would be an assumption that a non-Jewish candidate for vice president would know what the word was and how to say it. And the fact that he didn't happen to know how to say it is the joke, because everybody, even if you're not Jewish, should know um, what chutzpah is. So I want us to feel really good about American Jewish history and how American Jewish history um, made the melting pot. So now we're going to call this the good. And here is where you have an opportunity to uh, earn a pencil prize. For those of you who are new, these are genuine Jewish studies themed number two pencils, which you could use, but my undergraduates never do because they don't know what a pencil is anymore. <laughs> and we're going to put that here. And I'm going to say, 
what's really good about creating a nation and creating for us as well a Jewish community in, in this country with the melting pot. And just to let you know, I came up with five and I have my pen here. And if you guess one of mine, I'm gonna check it. And if you give me one I didn't come up with, I'm gonna steal it for the next time I give this lecture. So raise your hand. Why do we like the melting pot? And your name, if you would. Malcolm. Malcolm, hi. It gives value to who you are. Okay, it gives value to who you are. And how does it do that? Uh, by recognizing uh, what or where you're from and maybe contributions of influence. Excellent, thank you. Somebody else, yes. And, and, it makes you one of the team. All right, and we all want to be one of the team. And getting into the melting pot puts you on the team. And American Jews certainly want to do that. And all the way in the back? It's safe. It's Okay, and what makes the melting pot safe? Because you get mixed in. Thank you. Okay, someone else? Yeah. It preserves some of Oh, I'm sorry. I don't understand that without the accent. <laughs> Listen, it's time for you to focus. <laughs> Pardon me? You must concentrate. It preserves some of your inner being and of your people's within, as you said, the chutzpah. yes. Like just in the it makes it so that chutzpah which is the correct way to pronounce it, chutzpah. It, uh, it makes it so that chutzpah is something that is reserved forever. <laughs> All right, thank you. One more? Any more? Yes, please, Dad. It, uh, can I add? He does it naturally. <laughs> particular for Jews that came from Eastern Europe, it gave them a a sense of security. Okay, thank you all. And I have to say, I am so impressed. Almost all of those are just so wrong. And, it's, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's wonderful because as an educator, pedagogically, this is what I want. This is what we call the setup in education. This is where everyone is revealing how worthwhile this topic we picked was going to be. Okay? And I'm not going to single you out because you will feel yourself as we proceed through the evening that step by step, person by person, answer by answer, I'm going to just deconstruct everything you just said. So, so here's what I have. It's good because we all will get along. If you create a melting pot where every American, regardless of background, ethnicity, race, gender, what it just gets mixed together the number one positive benefit of the melting pot for American society and for Jews is that it is going to create a culture and a nation and a society where everyone gets along. We all agreed? No. Yeah. We, we need the melting pot for the family now, certainly, especially around Thanksgiving. Tolerance and diversity are valued. It doesn't matter how different you are. You can still enter the melting pot and become part of the new America, which that Time magazine cover showed us. Everyone's culture gets mixed into the new culture. And when we have the idea that there are sort of higher status and lower status cultures and groups and immigrants and people, the melting pot takes care of all that. It creates a singular new American culture. And there is so much a debate in our society historically and today about what is American, what isn't American, who is an American, who's patriotic, who's not. All of that stuff goes away with the melting pot. It eliminates isms, 
racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, right? Whatever ism you want. Because when you create that model of a person, uh, it's wonderful, isn't it? For those on the podcast, that was a deep breath, a sigh of relief, and a smile. Americanism. Well, I guess it would create a certain Americanism, and the dream would be that that Americanism would be one that so reflects everybody in America that it would be a good thing. So I would just like to get a little check on everybody. Everyone good with that? Sound good? You know me well enough. Here's the bad. Oh, yeah. All right. What's bad? What's that? Oh, oh, five. Yeah, I'm just, I only have three hours. <laughs> and we have to destroy four more models after I'm done with this one. So um, what's bad about the melting pot? Yeah. You lose so much, especially over generation, language, traditions. Oh, yes. You lose tradition, language, cooking. Um, culture. Culture. And children become embarrassed. By Ch children are embarrassed. Did you notice how, how quickly and feisty they got when I got to the bad? They were a little slow on the good. Yeah, someone else on, on bad? Yeah. Well, based on everything that I've heard so far, it, is, um, it sets up unrealistic expectations between political and social realms. Okay, sets up unre unrealistic expectations politically and socially. The first-generation Americans, they, they didn't acculturate. My grandparents... Their own. My grandmother couldn't even write English. When she yeah. voted, she, she signed her signature with an X. Right. So what's, so what's wrong with children, melting? With so melting they didn't in. melt. They didn't melt. They yes, but, their, yeah. And even today, people but, stay in their own little enclave. So now we'll be sociological, and we'll say, imagine a world where everybody melted. What would be bad about that? What else would be bad? We'd lose a lot. What's that? <laughs> John Lennon all the time. Imagine, <laughs> Imagine that Imagine. world. Imagine a perfect world. Yeah? If you didn't live within people that were like you, you lost so much of your life, you lost emotional support, you lost relationships. Right. All of you are so smart, you're already... What's that? Oh, okay, repeat the question. So you're, you're, not, you're not living with people who are similar to you. So I will say that all of you are so smart, you're actually not describing the melting pot. You're describing the more advanced models we're going to get to. Yeah? Theoretically, for evolution to work, we have to have lots and lots of differences so that you can find out which ones actually succeed, which ones result in a, in a better product. So, so in, in, in every... In evolution, which requires differentiation, would be the argument. All right, so I'm gonna we're gonna we have to move on because I got four more to go. But you're not you're y'all y'all being too kind. All right, so let's get right to American Jewish history and the melting pot. It demands intermarriage. If everyone is going to meld together into everyone else to create a new America and a new American that's going to look like whoever the persons are going to look like. It demands that the melting pot melds people together. So to vote in favor of the melting pot is to vote for 100% intermarriage in the Jewish community. Oh, by the way, that means also, for that and other reasons, the melting pot demands an end to Judaism. 
Because if you're going to meld together with everybody on everything, religions are going to be melded together. Christianity is going to go in and Judaism, Islam, and Buddhism, and Jainism, everything you want. And we're going to come out with a new religion. Let's call it Americanism as a religious group, which will be a component of all of the other religions that got melded together. But nowhere in that melting pot would there be a Judaism because it has to go away. You're feeling so good now? But wait, there's more. It demands an end to all distinctive ethnic traits and the cooking and whatever we had talked about, right? There can't be anything particularly Jewish on any front because all of that will get melded in with all of the other different American groups' versions of their thing to create a new thing on whatever it is. So in the real world of US history, the melting pot fails not only for the theoretical way that I described to you, but non-whites, for the most part, people of color in US history, have never been welcomed into the melting pot. And we're not really seen as what's called assimilable or having the power to be assimilated. Certainly America's indigenous peoples in the colonial period were not seen as people into the melting pot. African Americans were clearly not during times of slavery and even after, and, and the list goes on. So, uh, so now democracy hits CSP and it's time for the vote. You have now heard the best arguments in favor of the melting pot and the arguments opposed to the melting pot, we are going to take a hands-up public vote. And the question is, do you support the melting pot model of immigrant acculturation? But I think that's a question, not a vote. Yeah? Are we voting as Americans or as Jews? Oh, thank you. So I'm going to love that question and definitely avoid it by saying as yourselves, because that, <laughs> that would be part of how you would vote on the melting pot, right? And there's another question. Sure. If America is your first priority, I'm just saying it for that. Yeah. Right. Then, then in that sense, the melting pot where people don't lose their culture, but they they lose their identification with another country, then that's a that is a positive thing. If you're trying, it to could be a positive thing if you're getting rid of, of attachments that you don't want to. So what we see right now is called political lobbying just ahead of the vote. <laughs> And that's excellent because I think up till now the no vote was looking a little too strong and you gave us a powerful argument for the yes vote. And now we take it to a vote. Um, hands up if you vote yes on the melting pot. That it existed? No, no that it's, do you like it? Is it your favored model of acculturation? Is this what you like? Don't we have two choices? I, I, yeah, now see, this is not difficult, right? <laughs> this, this, is a, this is called pedagogy. It's an educational tool I invented to make the evening fun, you know, because we're going to build on this because there's actually going to be a lot more votes coming, and I want to implicate your later votes on the votes you take right now. Yes. First of all, we're Jewish. Making us choose between two things ain't going to work. <laughs> yes, this is called binary dialectic right. thinking. It doesn't happen. <laughs> yes. So, so who, many Jews you got in here? Who, who, votes, who votes yes? You like, you, you like the melting pot? Thanks to both of you. We have like five people <laughs> whose hands went up. How many vote no on the melting pot? Oh, almost everybody. Who didn't vote? All right, now you, but now you're voting that you didn't vote, so that actually means you voted. So there we have it. All right. Yes. There, there's a difference 
the melting pot of 1903. Correct. There's a difference between the melting pot of 1903 and the melting pot of today. And of today. Right. Yes. This this is what we call the upper division level of the course. We're in the lower division survey right now. And I'm just going to ignore that excellent point. Because we're now going to move to what do you do if the melting pot fails? And to tell you in US history and American Jewish history and in Jewish thought, because it turns out that these were all Jewish people that were coming up with these ideas, um, there was a sense that there's something different and better than the melting pot, and it was called salad. the salad bowl. The sal healthier, thank you, yes. <laughs> I just want you to know, when I was looking for images of melting pot, the fondue restaurant came up all over the place, and I had to search to not get the fondue <laughs> restaurant. Um, the salad, by the way, um, the, uh, the melting pot, if you're interested, the sociological word for melting pot is called Anglo-conformity, and that's just what the scholars call it, Anglo-conformity. Um, the salad bowl's fancy word is cultural pluralism, but I'll just call it the salad bowl because food is a good theme, especially after dinner. Uh, Horace Callan, or Horace Kalin, depending on how you like to pronounce his name, was the Jewish person, I think I have his picture here, yeah, here's, here's Horace Kalin, talking uh, about the salad bowl. According to the salad bowl, if Americans are different, it's a good thing. The salad bowl argued that difference was good. Remember, the melting pot said, melt all your differences away. So the salad bowl says, keep your differences. And uh, to bring us back to that delectable salad, the idea was America was like a giant salad where each ingredient remains separate. Each American group, whether it's religious, ethnic, racial, however you want to define your group, it remains separate. Each ingredient retains its own flavor. There's an independent flavor for each ingredient, and the different flavors mixed together make for a new flavor that's better than each individual one. Do you get the metaphor? When you put different Americans together in the same bowl, and you encourage every American group to have its own flavor, then the country is better for the fact that there's no melting pot. What about the salad dressing? Not necessarily. I hate the garlic. Dressing and the garlic. I hate the garlic. <laughs> I am on page four of the outline. The dressing and the garlic are going to come at the bottom of page six. <laughs> I am at page four. The, the garlic and the dressing come at the bottom of six. I know I intentionally walked away from the mic for two purposes. One, to be dramatic with the audience, and two, to raise your blood pressure. And I believe I've done both. So we're good. All right. With the salad, you can still have fights. Yeah, with the melting pot, you don't have the fights because everything is homogenous. So these fights. You don't need me tonight. <laughs> We're going to follow the program I have here in my outline, which is first you give the model, then you define the model, then you apply the model to Jew American Jewish history, then you do the good, the bad, and the vote. You're all getting into the bad, so I'm going to back you up. Now we're going to talk about Amer American Jewish history. Three immigration waves to the United States in American Jewish history for the most part. Um, if you were here on the Lunch and Learn, 
And if you come to the one, I'm going to do all of it in one in one 45 minutes, you know, spin. So each of the three waves, the Sephardic wave in the colonial period, Central European wave in the mid-19th century, the Eastern European wave at the turn of the 20th century, each brought its own flavor of Jewish life to America. <laughs> lots of differences between each of those three groups, and we know lots of differences even among the people in the same group. So I would have to argue in American Jewish history, we kind of need a salad bowl to show off all of our flavors, even just among the Jews, not to mention for the rest of the American groups. So uh, we had the Sephardic immigration in the colonial period with 5,000 people, Central European. Um, actually, I'm just going to move ahead because we're going to get um, right up to... Uh, oh, yeah, I also wanted to say, even in the modern period, we have uh, immigration of Persian Jews, largely here in Los Angeles, uh, former Soviet Union Jews throughout the United States, Israelis also are a large number. So it's not just sort of the three waves that historians uh, tend to see. And even with even more than that, we have different denominations in American Jewish life. Um, and uh, we even have secular Jews. We call them the bagels and lox Jews. And I just want you to know, I went to a bagel place next to the house in Mission Viejo this morning. I'm not going to mention the name in case anyone knows Einstein. And... <laughs> I'm just saying it had a very thin amount of cream cheese. <laughs> and when I asked for the lox spread, they said, you mean the smoked salmon smear? And I said, yes, I guess that's what I meant. <laughs> this is not what you call the bagel and lox Jew way of speaking um, as it goes. So we have secular Jews, cultural Jews, high holiday Jews, Jews who call themselves just Jewish, and a new sociological category called Christian Jews which actually exists for people raised as Jews who leave Judaism but still go to the grandparents for Passover Seder. So when the Jewish demographers say, do you go to Passover Seder? They say yes, because they do. And they say, what's your religious group? And they say Christian, because it is. But sociologically, they're Jews because they answered yes on Jewish identity markers. So with all of that, um, it's kind of confusing to figure out even the salad bowl in American Jewish history. And it's also challenging to look at a salad bowl in politics, because as we talked about, American, at least the Eastern European Jews, were leftist um, when they first came, socialist and communist. Then they voted for Republicans, mostly, from 1900 to 1928. The Democratic Party has taken most American Jewish voters from 1928 until now. But even when you say that, you can say that, because even today, Jewish politics are segmented with Orthodox Jews with former Soviet Union Jews and with uh, former Israeli Jews, oftentimes going against what the Eastern European descended Jews have done. So my argument here is American Jews need the salad bowl because this, only the salad bowl can capture our moment now and our moment historically. So please, what's the good of the salad bowl? All right, yes, Jews can keep their traditions in the salad bowl. What else? You can mix and come out better. You, you come out better for the fact that you're mixing together with others. And by the way, a lot of you who were saying nice things about the melting pot were really saying nice things about the salad bowl, not realizing that the melting pot forces you to get rid of all those wonderful things you were looking for, so you'd be salad bowl people at least for the next two minutes until we get to those two comments, which is going to destroy it all. Yes? It's okay for tomatoes, children, to marry tomatoes. 
Oh, yes. So if, thank you. So now we're playing the metaphor. It's okay for tomato children to marry tomato children, which means there's no forced intermarriage, which means whichever flavor you are in the salad, you can meet and interact with other flavors. And if you happen to like a similar flavor, that's okay because there still will be differentiated religious, ethnic, cultural groups. Excellent. Um, any other for the good? All right, let me make sure I got everything from my list. It honors and respects everyone. Everyone benefits from everyone else's differences. We all get along. I mean, that's hopefully the idea. If the, melting, if the salad bowl works, everyone's going to get along. We embrace difference rather than rejecting it or even tolerating it. And um, the salad bowl encourages more diversity because diversity is good for everyone. So let me pause before we destroy the salad bowl to say, isn't that nice? And now we have been presented with two approaches to acculturation used to be called assimilation. We don't call it assimilation because assimilation means you lose what you used to be. And in many cases, you don't lose it. You, you adapt your culture to another culture. So we call it acculturation. That's just a fancy way of saying what used to be assimilation. So uh, the salad bowl just looks a whole lot better for most American Jews than the melting pot because most American Jews want the good things that we've all said, and we don't tend to like the bad things of the melting pot. So what's bad with the salad bowl? Want to go back to your comment? Did you talk about the dressing? You need dressing. You need dressing. Is that good or bad in your mind? How much dressing, how fatty is dressing. It ruins the flavor of the elements in the salad. One moment, let me pause that. That's it. The dressing ruins the flavors of some of the salad. One moment, we're getting a pencil prize here. <laughs> All right, so here's the deal. Let's talk about dressing. And I would like to juxtapose the dressing to those crunchy garlic, someone said garlic, croutons. I love crunchy garlic croutons. Nobody around me does for the next three hours, but they're great. And then you take some strong dressing that nobody likes, and you pour it over that gorgeous garlic crouton. And what happens to the garlic crouton? It turns into mush. It ceases to be what it was. It is overpowered by the offensive dressing. If I had a choice, I would be the dressing and not the crouton. In fact, if you are not dealing with a chopped salad, because that's going to ruin the whole thing, I want to be the lettuce. Romaine, iceberg, butter lettuce, whatever lettuce you like. Because, wait a minute, we got to go back now, because I want you to get a visual on this thing. There it is. Yeah, there's a whole lot of green salad lettuce in there, isn't there? It has to be kale because kale. Kale, I know. My wife and my daughter love no, kale. No, he was the one who came up with it. Yeah, I, I, I am the kale-free zone. So, uh, yes. I see a, maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but I see everybody is tonight. Go for it. The salad dressing, as if it's poured on properly and it's a nice flavor, it be, it brings everything together. And I see the salad dressing in American Judaism as being the Americanism. All right. We're all Americans that we're all brought together, and it all tastes 
similar, but we retain our individuality. So on the outline, so, so the argument is that dressing can actually be good because it unifies the flavor profile of the salad rather than being a bad thing to make the croutons mushy. So I'm just going to tell you that Roman numeral 4A1 on my lecture outline here today says, not so great to be the mushy crouton. That's, my, that's what it says here. But it's over the line that says great to be the lettuce. So I actually didn't go for dressing, but I went with Ari for dressing. You two can find it out afterwards. I'm just going to say, one moment, the deal with the salad bowl is it's great if you get to be the lettuce, the dominant factor of the salad. It's not so great if you're that sesame seed that gets caught between your teeth, because that's annoying in the salad. Yeah. I don't care which yeah. one you're calling on me. Or yeah, you, you. Okay. Yeah. Everybody's talking about the dressing and the ingredients. The point of the salad is it's the chef. You need the right chef. To make a nice salad. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Nice salad. You all get to be. So the argument is, you get you, have, you need a good chef to um, to make a good salad. You're going to be the chef when you all take the vote. When you can see how this thing goes. Uh, yes, one more, and then I'll give you the theory here. Yeah. One bad tomato ruins. The one bad tomato ruins the whole thing. And I will tell you, any tomato ruins the whole thing. And um, I think Wendy was here. Where's Wendy? There you are. So. So Wendy did not cut up the, the, the cherry tomatoes that she served at Shabbat dinner last night, which is great. I did not want to be a rude guest, but since we're friends now and we're all together in front of 80 people, I'll say that as you were looking around at the different parts of the Shabbat table, I was moving them to either side to my daughter or my wife because they love the tomato, and I am a voting no on the tomato in the salad bowl. So now we'll get serious for a moment because here's the fact that the salad bowl in our conversation about the ingredients is actually a metaphor. And what we're really talking about is power. The ingredients of the salad are metaphors for expressions of power. And here's how the salad bowl works. The lettuce, the green, the dominant part of the salad will get to be played by the dominant group in American society, whomever the dominant group is, but let me give you an idea, it's not going to be the Jews, for the most part. It's probably going to be sort of white Protestants, or probably going to be that in, in some way. Then, each of the things get topped on top to accent the flavor of the lettuce, whether it's the crouton or the tomatoes or, or whatever it's going to be. These are going to be the minority groups in America and Jews will get something, and every other ethnic, racial, gender minority will get something else. And when this happens, what you're going to see is a recreation of the power differential and a recreation of systemic inequality and the recreation of isms. Because while we would like to think that the salad bowl will work to mix everyone together in a way that you all can be what you want to be, so long as it isn't a chopped salad, it's not going to end up that way. There will be dominant and weak partners. So let's just chop it up. You know, every which way into little pieces and mix it up so it becomes, dare we say it, a melting pot of the salad bowl, right? <laughs> and, and that's cheating. Well, first of all, the green lettuce will never let you do that. Because the moment you do that, you are taking away their power and giving more power to them. And I'll tell you the way society works, those in power tend to power conceits, nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. Frederick Douglass, 1857. Question. Yeah, 
majority the lettuce, as you said. What if another group comes in like hot chili peppers, only a few of them, and they dominate the whole salad? What if you need a few um, chili peppers come in and they're going to dominate the salad? It is going to piss off the lettuce. And then we're going to have racial, ethnic, cultural discord. What happens to me? I send it back to the kitchen because I said not spicy or when Israel lo harif because I want it bland. Yes. I'm just thinking if you take a chopped salad, that salad that's in that bowl, chop it, chop it, chop it as fine as you can, you still technically have the same proportions of all of the ingredients. So yeah. even though it looks mushy, a, a chopped salad will still have more green by volume. Yeah, and, and, and now we are truly getting into culinary science to determine the relationship of power between American groups. If you were my undergraduates, I would make that the final exam, you know, just for fun. So here's the bad on the salad bowl. Weaker American groups will tend to stay weak whether we chop it or not. That's still going to happen. Dominant groups are going to stay dominant in the salad bowl, however that is. And sadly, Jewish history and American Jewish history has shown us as vulnerable as a weak group. So the idea that we would like a salad bowl probably means that we're going to end up being more on the mushy crouton part. Next, away from that argument, the salad bowl has a lack of any unifying cultural traits. What is America and what is an American if it's all mixed up and you can throw in a chili pepper anytime you want just to mix it up again. Is it volume or Yes, volume, impact, and, and, this, and the salad bowl is ever-changing, and because of this, we never get a standard like the melting pot was going to offer. We never know exactly what America is, and if Jews are going to acculturate to America and be part of something big that is American, the salad bowl won't give us a clear definition. So yes, it's time for the vote. Do you like the salad bowl, yes or no? And it is informed by your melting pot vote, I am sure. Who says yes? Oh, this is such a... Uh, we have like 20 people on the yes, and who says no on the melting pot? Yeah. Salad, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, let's do it again. Yes on the salad bowl. No on the salad bowl. Now we're like 50-50-50. That's 50% yes, 50% no, 50% not voting. <laughs> Sounds like a vote in North Carolina. <laughs> North Carolina vote right there. So <laughs> we've had the melting pot and the salad bowl. And now, dare I say it, here it is. The Big Mac. The Big Mac. Uh, you know, I actually, Ari just said it's not kosher. So not kosher. It is so, so abundantly not kosher. And, and in fact, I'm going to play that theme for, for the remainder of the evening. Uh, when I taught this in graduate school at the Hebrew Union College, the Reform Movement Seminary, I changed the Big Mac to something that wasn't so obviously trafe. Um, and then I said, no, I'm going to make it trafe because I have tenure and this is part of my point. All right. So um, this is called Anglo-conformity. Oh, um, others call it assimilation. Sometimes it gets confused with the melting pot. But basically, you know that thing about the sausage factory? What, you know, in the sausage factory, it doesn't matter what goes in. It all comes out looking the same. And with all due respect to the Big Mac 
and to whatever this beef thing is. Whatever you put in to make that thing, it all comes out looking identical no matter what McDonald's you go to anywhere on planet Earth. If you order two all beef patty, special sauce, ladies, cheese, pickles, onion, <laughs> on a sesame seed bun, that's exactly what you're going to get. And guess what? For immigrant acculturation, for Jewish acculturation to America, it doesn't matter what distinctiveness Jews put into America, America will churn them like that sausage grinder and spit them out, trafe, unkosher, and looking identical to every single other person. Wow. Here, um, immigrants lose the old world culture when they immigrate America becomes their new home and their new culture. Unlike the melting pot where everybody's old world culture gets melted, or unlike the salad bowl where your old world culture gets added in, according to the Big Mac, you, it is gone. You say goodbye to Eastern European Jewish culture if that's where you come from, because you are an American now and you eat at McDonald's. And that's what it looks like. this can give you a heart attack, it can kill you. It turns out it's bad for your health. So and that's exactly what is happening. This, this is uh, Oscar Handlin's path-breaking book from the 1950s, actually, called The Uprooted. Um, it won, like every prize you can imagine, it established Handlin, a Harvard University historian, as the leader in his field. And he was so wrong about the book. But that's OK. That's historiography, as we've talked about it. He called the book The Uprooted. This was the first book ever written in immigration history. If you've been to the earlier talks on historiography, he set the filiopietistic historiographic model of immigrant acculturation by arguing, how about that, I get a pencil, um, <laughs> by arguing that when an immigrant leaves their home, whatever immigrant they are, whatever their home is, they are uprooted. Pull your roots out. And when you arrive in America, you are you are completely divorced of anything that ever came before. Yeah. The Big Mac must be very powerful because it's it's basically a globalistic phenomenon because now there are McDonald's everywhere. So now it's not just people who come to America who become American. Right. So Big Mac is globalist because it's all over the world. And and any it's so America has spread everywhere and everyone's now becoming part of that sausage machine that goes through. And I'll just say for the Israelis here that it used to be called McDavid because not even McDonald's could get to Israel. And now, of course, McDonald's is everywhere in Israel. And yes, so there's the globalism in, in, even in a Jewish way. Handlin argued that, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, so they changed the menu at McDonald's in India to, oh, would that be a salad bowl of the melting pot of the Big Mac? <laughs> right, that would be interesting. So Hanlon, Hanlon argued uprootedness as the story of immigration and that the story of acculturating means that the immigrants left behind everything old and what became 100% new. It is an argument made in the historiography of US history with slavery. The theory among the early scholars of American slavery was when Africans came from Africa and the institution of slavery in the American South was so oppressive that none of their African cultural traits could survive because slavery robbed Africans of their own traditions and turned them into Christians and, and essentially you know, just workers. So this is an important book by Gerald Mullen because he was the first book in the historiography to discount that thesis 
And he actually argued that Africans and later African Americans retained a lot of African culture, even in slavery, and they used and deployed that as part of their um, resistance to the institution of slavery. It's a fascinating book. Um, but what these, what these do for us is show us how it is that it would work. Now, in the American Jewish experience, uh, in the colonial period, the Sephardic Jews um, didn't even get religious freedom. If you were here for the Wednesday thing, just yesterday, it seems like last week already, um, then there could be no Big Mac in colonial America for Jews because Jews couldn't even get into the machine you know, to create it. The Central European migration, uh, oh, yes, we talked about Jewish San Francisco yesterday, where they built these magnificent churches, I mean synagogues. Um, all right, well, they were synagogues, but they looked like churches. But if you took down the Morgan Davi, the Star of David, and put a cross there, it would make perfect sense. And, uh, and yeah, you could say classical reform California Judaism was the Big Mac, because it seemed as if these Jews were letting go of Jewish tradition, letting go of the mitzvot, embracing California Protestant religious worship. They, they moved the Sabbath to Sunday. They eliminated the bar mitzvah, put in confirmation. Right? All of these things with classical reform Judaism can be seen as the Big Mac model. And, um, and in the Eastern European migration, there was a fight between the Eastern European Jews and the Central European Jews who'd come 50 years earlier, because the Central Europeans were highly assimilated, very successful, and frankly, a little upset and concerned that two million poor Orthodox or socialist Eastern European Jews are gonna ruin it for them in America. So the, um, I'll repeat this next week, but it's a good story. Jacob Schiff, one of the leaders of the Central European group, a, a, a rich banker, decided, and these are my words, that he's going to apply the Big Mac model to the Eastern European Jews. He's going to churn them into Americans by not having them go to New York anymore, because New York was a place of either the melting pot or the salad bowl. Both would be bad. He wants to strip them of their Jewishness, so he made them a deal. If you agree to go to Galveston, Texas, I will pay your boat fare. They called it the Galveston Project. 1906, it started. I was so excited, I was going to write my undergraduate thesis on the Galveston Project. In fact, I was so excited, I had a title for my thesis. Are you ready for this? Galveston, colon, Ellis Island of the West. So I went to something called a card catalog, which we used to have back in those days, to find out any reference books I could read, because I needed to do that. There was only one reference book at the Berkeley Library. It was called, let me remember, yes, Galveston, colon, Ellis Island of the West. And that's why my undergraduate thesis was on Jews of the California Gold Rush. Schiff also got some ships to go into Galveston. My yeah. uncle, his boat did not go to New York, it went to Galveston. Yeah, so, so what happened is they all took them up on the offer, they all went to Galveston, they got to Galveston, they bought their train tickets for New York. <laughs> because it turns out the train ticket from Galveston to New York was cheaper than the boat fare from Europe to New York, and after two years of wasting his money, he closed down the program. So, um, all right, what's the good? And just in the interest of time, I will, I will move this along. Uh, the Big Mac model speeds assimilation. You Jews can become American by embracing American values. 
instantly. This promotes innovation since it gets rid of traditions that are stifling. One could argue that a problem with an immigrant nation is how do you bring all these different groups in and get them on board with the new America? And the big back model will certainly do that for you. But of course, that means we have the bad. It's going to end old world culture just like the melting pot did. In fact, it's worse than the melting pot because you're not even going to get a little piece of the new America, right? You're just going to have to embrace the new one. And um, as we're going to learn if you're in the Wednesday series, um, United States immigration policy in 1921 and 1924 restricted Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe to almost nothing. And that was done because they really wanted a Big Mac model and they thought that too many Jews would make it too difficult to be able to sort of turn everybody into the kind of American that they wanted. In this case, the U.S. Congress decided even the Big Mac was too lenient. So let's take our vote. Who likes the Big, the Big Mac? Nobody. Just for the record, for the podcast record, who is opposed to the Big Mac? That's, that's a good answer. By the way, that's why I made it number three in the list, because if you start that with number one, it's very uninteresting. we got to get the tension starting, which is going to bring us to model number four, the pizza. And I did do a veggie pizza earlier, and now I'm back to the meat and cheese and pork into the pizza in order to complicate the narrative. You see, the next model is the pizza model. And all right, this is kind of cheating. What the pizza model says is some parts of the immigrant acculturation will be like cheese, melted together, like the melting pot. Other parts of the pizza are going to be individual toppings, like the salad bowl. So the pizza is the way that those of you who didn't vote one way or another can now gladly vote yes on this and say absolutely nothing with your yes vote because the challenge of the pizza model is deciding what the cheese is and what the toppings are, which means what part of American culture do we all need to meld together and get rid of our difference because there are certain things in America we must agree on? And what things is it okay or should we differentiate and have difference? The U.S. Constitution tells us religion needs to be a topping. We are guaranteed religious freedom. You don't want to meld that together. There's a huge debate. There has been in our state and across the country on English and Spanish. To what extent should language be part of the cheese where everybody should be obliged to learn and speak English? And to what extent does having different immigrants speaking different languages part of a salad bowl and it should be part of the toppings? So uh, let's take our vote on the pizza model. Who loves it? Raise your hand. There could be, there could be anchovies. Are there anchovies? Right. So, what's that? They cross the thing. They, uh, you know, on the pizza, and this is a beautiful part of this one, because I'm just giving you my bias before you even vote. It can be whatever on earth you want. Thin crust, thick crust, multi-cheese, one level of cheese with anchovies, without pepperoni or not, tray for not. Because, the, because I was forcing you to take a stand on the first two models, and now you have a model that let you vote yes on everything. This is a cop-out, yeah. That's right. a question. So, so say, question. Well, I'd say, say that again then? 
<laughs> that something is normative with d depending on in reality there's there's a group that's dominant there's a dominant group who tells you what is normative that's the cheese yeah. the cheese or is the, the dominant crust. group telling you what what is american <laughs> or the crust the rest of us and you know you don't really get to make those choices if you're the anchovy you don't get to decide what the cheese is Right. So basically, what we're now doing is we're weaving in right. the pro and the cons right. of the religion. We'll take these two, and then we'll and then we'll go to the vote. Yeah. It seems to me that anyway, for the pizza to work, everybody has to agree on what's the cheese and what's the bread. Because if not, then you have a civil war. Right. So the pizza demands that everyone agree what the cheese is, and that's the idea. The cheese is a melting pot. Everyone has to agree on that. We get both. We can get both on that. Yeah. So the argument is that different people have different parts of their life, and some of the parts of their life could be the cheese, and other parts could be the toppings, and one person may in fact be occupying spaces in different parts of the pizza simultaneously, and this is what uh, modern scholars call intersectionality, that, that people have different identities, often complementary and sometimes even conflicting, and we're operating in sometimes confusing ways based upon the fact that we're all not just Jews. For example, in this room, if we all happen to be Jews, we are all lots of different varieties and flavors of lots of different things. So just for the sake of the vote, who likes the idea of the pizza model? Raise your hand. And who doesn't like it? All right, well, that's actually more, it's almost 50-50. Usually everybody votes yes on pizza because it's meaningless, <laughs> you know, and there's no reason not to like it. So I like the critical thought that we don't because the truth is, that these are models, and this is a sociology talk, you know, informed by history, we of course navigate between and among each of the models in different ways. We are also, as you argued, at, at, at one moment we can be in multiple places, and I have here, we change over time and we change over place, so that also happens. In my scholarship, I'm interested in how Jews and politics will intersect with various models of immigrant acculturation, but, um, for more on that, we'll have to wait until next week. Thank you very much. And now we can take some questions. Yes. There's a TV show we're asking who watched the TV show on Einstein's theory. Oh, I taped it. I didn't have I was preparing for the Community Scholar program or teaching in it. I don't remember. <laughs> I'm but that theory perfectly describes what we've been talking about. All right, so we are getting positive feedback that tonight's lecture is Einsteinian. Thank you. Okay. Is the melting pot approach similar to the EU, and you're seeing problems in the EU as individuality is 
Okay, so the question is the EU a case of the melting pot? That's really good, I didn't think about that. I would actually argue that the EU is salad bowl in that you have different autonomous countries each adding with the idea that difference is better. Or maybe it could be pizza because the economic union would be the cheese and then the, the stuff on top would be Britain, you know, because, because they don't want to belong to everybody else and now they're leaving, yeah. What would be your opinion of Cholent? Cholent. What's Cholent. the opinion of Cholent? Because Cholent is something where you, you start off with a salad bowl-ish with multiple different things. Mm -hmm. And over time, they mix together. And they, and they do bring about the goodness of it. Yeah, when you bite into the potato, you know it's the potato. When you bite into the whatever meat, it, you know it's the meat. And, and you can add over time, because everything that you described was, boom, here it is. There's a Big Mac. There's a pizza. There's a salad. This takes place over time with continual adding of a small amount to the bigger, to the bigger pot. And, and maybe that uh, you've just given me my next model, and my new 45-minute lecture will be a 60-minute lecture. And uh, I've written down Cholent, because now we, now we have these models in motion. I, I was going to jokingly say that what is Cholent is definitely Jewish. We'll definitely go for that. Um, but, but now we can actually move the metaphor into action, so you're getting a level two prize for that, which is the Crayola Crayon Pencil Eraser. <laughs> Cholent is just Jewish stew. And now, for those of you in uh, internet land, we are having a fight over Cholent between two members of the audience. It will not get to fists to cuffs because we're going to have civility. Uh, yes, you have to remember that in order to create the Cholent, you have to have heat for a specified amount of time. Which novice is over and it's done. It's done, it becomes a cold, clotted mess. We, we, we now have a third opinion on Cholent, and I am coming to the sad realization that if I were to try to offer Cholent to my undergraduates when I give this lecture, they will stare at me blankly. And that will be the most sad and depressing part. Uh, someone who has not yet had a question, had a chance to ask a question, yeah. Very naive So the question is, why did I have you vote, right? Um, and I had you vote actually for something called historical memory, which is the field of academic history. And now I'll get, I'll get uh, uh, scholarly for a moment. And that is, history is what happened in the past. Historiography is how different generations of historians describe it, and it tends to change over time. Historical memory is how we remember it. And it turns out that historical memory is usually different than history. We tend to remember what we think happened in the past, but it actually didn't happen or it happened a different way because things intervene over time so that we tend to, look, we tend to remember things that we like to remember, we tend to forget things that we don't want to remember, and we tend to spin things, and, and then before you know it, we have what's called inventing. We've invented an American Jewish history that we're sure is true. So my month here is to undermine your invention of history. So what I, what I did the first night is everyone thought that the guard at Ellis Island changed your family's name, but it never happened. If you weren't there, now you can be upset. And tonight's goal for historical memory was to say, oh, y'all like the melting pot, do ya? Right? And then I wanted to set you all up and just find the melting pot, apply it to American Jewish history, have you all say wonderful things about the melting pot, and then say, guess what? 
the melting pot's terrible. And this is why the melting pot is terrible. And this is why it's actually not a Jewish thing. And then you're all supposed to go, I can't believe that. Let's do the salad bowl. And then historical memory loves the salad bowl. And then we destroyed that. And then we just sort of move through it. So I was doing it more from a pedagogical place. You could internalize your question however you wish in order to see you know, how, how you want that to go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if there is also, just to add on to that, to Harris's comment, is there a, a normative piece of this where you're voting on what you would like it to be, what, what should have happened, right. and what should be now yeah. happening? And in that sense, my question is, none of them seem to guarantee convergence, right? None of them guarantee that everybody can agree on the salad. Nobody can agree on what's the bread and what's the top. Yeah. You know, and like and in American history, actually nobody has agreed because the Civil Wars never ended. So yeah, so the argument is it's tough whatever you vote for because frankly none, none of these work and that's sort of part of of philosophy, you create models and none of them actually work. But I'll bring you back to the first sentence of the thesis on the outline. It says, an immigrant group's relationship to power more than any other factor determines their model of acculturation. And that's where I honor your comment, and that's true. Because really what these models are not, they're not about what we thought they were about. They were about which group is powerful and which group isn't, or which part of identity is going to be more powerful and which one isn't. Because no matter which one you're in, if you got the power, it's going to be better for you. And if you don't have the power, it's going to be worse. So we're not actually talking about immigrant acculturation or American Jewish history. We're talking about power and how, and how that works. Yeah. So the argument is regionalism matters. And if you're in Wyoming, for example, it's going to be a totally different story because the lack of Jewish associational networks is going to increase the rate of intermarriage. And yes, and yes, and that to me is about relationship to power. Because if you're the only Jew in Wyoming and you'd like to create a Jewish culture, anything, it's going to be really hard because you're kind of the only one in town. Yeah. Last question. That last question. The positive thing about all of it Thank you for ending with that introductory clause. One of these inadequate and incomplete metaphors is that every one of them provides a place for everybody. It may not be the powerful place, mm -hmm. but it provides a place for everybody. And the other model, which we didn't discuss, is the purification model, where there's only a place for one type, and you don't want your type, and you're not going to be made or any type of adulting or any other kind of process. So whichever model you use, you've got an Americanization model where somehow there's a place for everybody. Yeah, thank you for that, especially because there was one more model I did not put in tonight, and that was the model because it was getting too long. That was far too depressing because what you, what, what you were, what's your name again? Mike. Mike, thank you, Mike, sorry. What Mike is describing is anti-Semitism and scientific eugenics-based anti-Semitism, where the immigrant, if it's a Jewish immigrant, can't engage any of these models because they're not allowed there because they're considered a threat to that particular society. So, there, so I did this with an underlying assumption of a place which is going to welcome immigrants in some way, and that's not going to be exclusionist in its anti-Semitism. And if you're interested in more of what Mike was describing, I will be giving some lectures, uh, sadly, on anti-Semitism, I think, as we're proceeding through. Thank you very much.